Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. From 2009 to 2016, Andrea Goldstein served as an active duty naval officer, primarily with expeditionary forces. She's currently working toward a master's degree at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Since mid-2014, Andrea's also been a contributor to the website Task and Purpose, whose mission is to provide a voice for the next great generation of American veterans. One of Andrea's recent articles for the website is titled, quote, Veteran Caregivers Can Be Men, But No One Recognizes That. In fact, one of those male caregivers is Andrea's partner, who is himself a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, and who cares for Andrea while they're both in school full-time. Andrea Goldstein, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we go any further, I, of course, would be absolutely remiss if I did not thank you and your partner for your sacrifices as members of the U.S. military. We're grateful for your service. I think I can speak for my listeners in saying that. Thank you for serving our country. And thank you for drawing attention to the issue of military caregivers, male and female. We're going to get to your article in a moment. But to set the stage for our listeners, can you tell us where you grew up? And was it a military family? So I did not grow up in a military family by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I grew up in New York City, and the only relatives that I had who served in the military were my grandfathers and my great uncles who served in World War II. Growing up in New York City, and I, I mean, I was a kid, and I'm a '90s kid. So how old are you? Up, I'm 29. Okay. <laughs> so I was born in the '80s, but my childhood was in the '90s. So peacetime military, New York City, the only exposure that I had to the military at all was during Fleet Week when an aircraft carrier would come in. So uh, I think my decision to serve in the military while looking back at a lot of the values that were instilled in me growing up, it shouldn't have been too much of a stretch of the imagination, but it certainly wasn't wasn't a common thing for any of my peers to do. Mm-hmm. And do you have siblings? I do. I have four step-siblings. Okay. Uh, my family moved. My, my mom and my stepdad live in the Hudson Valley in New York, where they've lived for over 10 years now. So that's where, that's where most of my family is now. Okay. And you were in the Navy for seven years. What, what was your rank at retirement? I separated as a lieutenant, which is, we have no- letters and numbers that go with everything. So that's an 03. Okay. So a Navy lieutenant is like an Army captain. Got it. And why did you choose the Navy? So I was looking at a couple of different branches. I initially looked at the Army. West Point isn't too far from where I grew up and where my family lives now. Mm-hmm. And when I thought of the military, I just thought of the Army. 
And then there were Marine Corps recruiters where I went for college, which is the University of Chicago. And so I spoke with them and I was actually very, very close to joining the Marine Corps and spoke to a good friend of mine who was in the Marine Corps. And he said, I know you could do it and I know you would do well, but I think you would find it exhausting fighting sexism in a way that because a lot of jobs were still closed to women in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. And there was no guarantee that you would get a particular job when you go in. Whereas in the Navy, you apply for a particular position guaranteed upon joining. Mm. The Navy had the fewest jobs that were closed to women. I knew I would be getting the job that I wanted. Plus, the Navy also has the best bases. So I also knew, okay, it's like, well, I could be stationed in Naples, I could be stationed in San Diego, I could be stationed in D.C., and I did end up in San Diego for five years. For five years, okay. So can you elaborate on your duties as a naval officer, and for our listeners who may not know, what exactly are expeditionary forces? Expeditionary forces tend to be smaller units deployed, we say deployed for purpose as opposed to deployed for, because there are certain missions that are constant, but they're deployed for a, a specific purpose. And it tends to be, um, it, it can include special operations. Um, I did do some work in special operations, but then I also did some work with the Marine Corps. So saying expeditionary and was able to incorporate or encompass all of that. In the military and, and in the Navy in particular, you're just speaking from my own experience, you have your jobs that are specific to your, your specific function, which for me was being an intelligence officer. Mm-hmm. But then you also have responsibilities that are just more about being in the Navy and being a leader. So you're responsible for overseeing the career progression of those who report to you and sometimes watch standing and doing shift work, which is sometimes specific to your job or specific to the fact that the ship or the unit just needs someone to stand watch. And the vast majority of what I did had a lot more to do with enabling those who reported to me to be able to do their job. Mm -hmm. And where were you deployed? So I did several deployments. The first time I did a short short-fused and short-in-duration deployment to Japan in 2011 following the earthquake and tsunami there. Um, That was my first overseas assignment. And then the next year, I deployed on a ship. So we went through the Western Pacific and then into the Indian Ocean, the Middle East, and so we were in what was called Fifth Fleet of Responsibility. So uh, we spent a good amount of time in the Gulf of Aden. And so I, we visited a couple of very interesting countries. I got to go to East to Timor-Leste, to Djibouti. Did you say East Timor? Um, yes. And Thailand. So Thailand was the one fun stop we got on that. Wow. We had two days there. And you get to see it, but it, to some extent you often right. don't get to see the right. places you go. Sure. And then I left that deployment halfway through because I had orders to go to a very, very long training assignment in preparation for my next deployment, which was, again, in the Middle East. And I I was largely in the Gulf states for my third deployment. Uh And that was, my last deployment was 2013 to 2014. And then 
after that, most of my, I went overseas quite a bit for the Navy, but it was all short term. Okay. And it was Naval Intelligence? So that was always my job responsibility was as a Navy intelligence officer. But like I said, sometimes the work I was doing was intelligence related. Right. But a lot of the times the work that I was doing would be operational planning support or leading other sailors and enabling them to do a particular job function. So typically the people who worked for me were intelligence specialists and essentially they did all the work and I went to all the meetings. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about some of the, and I want to get to the caregiving piece in a minute, but what, was the, what were some of the toughest parts of serving for you? I know you've written about sexism in the military, which probably no surprise to our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, what, were, what were some of the toughest missions that you've had and, and, and why? So it's really hard for me to pinpoint an individual mission that was particularly challenging. Mm-hmm. I had, I mean, there was basically a two-year period where I was never home. My car was in San Diego for five years. Uh I wasn't necessarily (laughs) there. So my partner and I met early 2013 and were long distance pretty much the entire time we were dating. We met, we had four months together when we were in a course and then I didn't see him for a year. Wow. And that year, I, it was, was kind of the best of times and the worst of times because I was deployed and then he was deployed. And to be very colloquial, that sucked. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, was he also in the Navy? He was also in the Navy. I met oh. him in the Navy. Okay. And being overseas was actually a lot easier than when I came home and he was overseas. Hmm. Um, because I was, I was just busy. And the deployment was not without significant frustrations at times, but it was also a great assignment. But that whole year kind of just had this specter of not really knowing what was going to happen and not really knowing if things were going to work out and hoping they did and mm-hmm. still trying to live my life. And so that was there. I can't pinpoint any individual moment that was particularly challenging. It mm-hmm. was just living through that. And I, you know, I don't see him for two days and it's difficult, which, you know, looking back on it, like, how did I not see this person for 11 and a half months? Right, right. So at what point did your partner become your caregiver? And why? And was he also in the Navy? So it's largely a recent phenomenon because we didn't live together until the end of August because we just, I, we lived in different parts of the country. We had both been deployed. I was living alone when I started to have all my health issues, and to, which are you know, largely, largely back problems. And I did occasionally need help when I was still in the military the last year or so and I've been thinking about this a lot and one of the things that I really took for granted working where I did was how many people live with chronic pain and how many people were used to that and the real empathy that my coworkers had for it mm-hmm. so there were days where you know I would go to the meetings I had to go to and I would do what I what needed to be done in the office, and then I would work from home in the afternoon, or I would kind of work longer days when I was feeling well and, and stay home when I wasn't feeling that great. And so to that extent, I didn't necessarily need as much care at home. Mm-hmm. Plus, I was also, I traveled a great deal. So mm-hmm. when it came to things just needing to get done around the house, 
well, they didn't need to get done because I wasn't there. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So now move the timeline forward to a couple of months ago. And for whatever reason, my health deteriorated a little bit. And he and I actually were living together. And it has just been a huge adjustment between really being on all the time and having my time pretty structured. I mean, even if I was in control of a lot of it, because mm-hmm. I was relatively senior within my unit. And now I mean, being on a student schedule is completely different. And so it's not even just a student schedule. It's a professional school. So mm-hmm. you're balancing your classwork and trying to find a job. And the fact that you now have outside commitments because you're, you're an adult in school this time. And so, I mean, I have to go across town to do doctor's appointments a lot. Often, you know, sometimes I'll spend basically two full days in doctor's offices and and that takes up a lot of my time. So a lot of what he does is really help me manage my time so that I'm not missing opportunities because I have to go to appointments and then take care of whatever chores need to be done. And this is not just about sharing housework because, like, he does everything. It's not just about, you know, him doing his fair share. I mean, he does everything. Mm -hmm. And that's in large part because of your chronic back pain? Yes, yes. (laughs) Is that what the Navy Um, did to you? Or have you always had chronic back pain? No, it started about two years ago. I woke up one morning and couldn't move. And so there's some days where I look totally fine Mm -hmm. and feel relatively normal but there's you know a saying and it often pops up as an internet meme that pain is weakness leaving the body unless you served and then it's probably arthritis mm-hmm. and that was the case for me and sometimes it's extremely severe so that's what I live with and, and some days I'm fine and some days I look fine and I feel what I have become accustomed to is being fine And some days I feel awful and don't want to get out of bed and can barely move. And last week it was almost comical. Like I really wasn't feeling up to going up one flight of stairs. And I got in an elevator at school and got stuck in the elevator. Oh, how ironic. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I now understand why there is an elevator that only goes up one floor of stairs. Right. Um, And then I got stuck in it. Oh, Um, my God. So he does sometimes help me with things that I am not capable of doing because mm-hmm. because I'm not physically capable. And that's actually one of the most evident things when we moved into our apartment is we live on a first floor apartment. The laundry is in the basement. And carrying laundry up and down a flight of stairs was really challenging for me. Wow. So that's really where it, it started. And then it ended up, being him also really just helping me with time management. Mm-hmm. And he's in school full-time too, right? He is, he is. Is he at the Fletcher School? He is. Oh, okay, great. So let's get to your article titled, Veteran Caregivers Can Be Men, but no one recognizes that. Your subtitle is, Hidden Heroes and Other Groups Are Doing Good Work. They'll do even better when they drop the stereotypes. So in the article, for our listeners, you call attention to the fact that while More than 40% of military veteran caregivers are men. Many groups doing otherwise good work to support veterans really fail to recognize male caregivers in their messaging. And 
one of these groups who you call out right at the beginning of the article is um, the Dole Foundation's new Hidden Heroes Initiative, which was launched in September of this year. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the work of Hidden Heroes and how at the launch gala, how Tom Hanks introduced the program kind of chafed you, for lack of a better phrase. And for the listeners, because it's in your article, at the the gala, Tom Hanks, who has, as we know, done some fantastic work on behalf of military veterans. Um, Mm -hmm. He introduced the program Hidden Heroes by saying, quote, by military caregivers, we're talking about wives and family members and girlfriends and kids and parents. Right. Yeah. You know, I think Hidden Heroes is, is, I mean, they're trying to do really good work and they are doing very good work. Sure. And what a lot of what they're doing is because a lot of caregivers have either given up careers or never developed careers because they are caring for a disabled veteran. So the fellowship that Hidden Heroes does helps support those caregivers. And then it also gives them the ability to shine a light on what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a lot of what they're doing is just raising awareness to the fact this is even a phenomenon in the first place. That's very, very necessary. Military and veteran spouses do sacrifice a great deal. They're also not all women. And when I initially found out about Hidden Heroes and I read the statement that was given at the launch gala, I was in an Uber on my way home from a VA appointment and walked through the door and my fiancé had made brownies for me because he knew that I was probably having a bad day. Wow, he sounds really great. Oh, he's he's, he's terrific. (laughs) Um, So it wasn't only that it kind of, it it irked me that they didn't have an inclusive message, but I was living the lack of inclusivity at the same time. And it it isn't like organizations like Hidden Heroes or the VA has a specific uh, veteran caregiver caregiver program to provide financial and logistical support to caregivers. It isn't like these organizations don't support male caregivers. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when they're presented as being for women, it communicates that they're not it's not for men. It's not for male caregivers. And, you know, we have a similar issue with a lot of veteran services, which sometimes while they do support women veterans, when they appear to only support male veterans, a lot of people internalize the message that this is not for me. And then just knowing from personal experience, I think knowing my partner, unless someone came out and asked him, What do you need help with? How can we help you? This is how, you know, these are some of the things we can offer you. He may not necessarily even realize that those resources are out there. And so the outreach only goes so far when you talk about, you know, women and children. So it's also just about inclusivity in in these organizations. It's, It's, you know, it's great what they're doing They have done great work. They will continue to do great work, but it perpetuates invisibility if they're not inclusive, and that means other less visible groups continue to have some of the issues that they've had. And personally, and it was a very difficult article to write, and it went through several rewrites because I 
I don't want to appear to be attacking hidden heroes. Uh-huh. I don't want to appear to be attacking these veterans organizations who are very, very well-intentioned and, and do help a particular group of people. But the lack of, of awareness can be very damaging for less visible groups. And that's something that I think they need to be very, very aware of. Mm-hmm. Did you feel at all that you would be seen as unpatriotic if you spoke out? I did. And, and that's, that's always the struggle, right? If someone yeah. is, is trying to do, someone is trying to do the right thing. And in, by many definitions, they are doing a good thing. And especially there's, you know, there might be a criticism. It's like, well, they're still helping veterans. And, you know, we are talking about, you know, most of the veteran population here. Well, and what that, I was really, really surprised about that RAND study that nearly half of caregivers are men. Right. Right. Andrea's talking about a RAND report that was commissioned by the Dole Foundation itself. Right. So the Dole Foundation then in theory knew. <laughs> right. And still, in that case, it seemed to me made a deliberate choice to only depict yeah. mostly women. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I think Task and Purpose is so interesting as a website is because it is geared specifically toward a new generation of military members. So, And you're in that generation. And so I'm wondering if the messaging of Hidden Heroes, uh, and again, I completely agree with you. They're obviously doing great work, and, and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if the messaging is being crafted by folks who are maybe part of the older generation of veterans and the idea of women's work is changing and if your generation is in large part responsible for this shift that's underway culturally and how we view women's work and how we view service to our country and I mean I think that that you've got to acknowledge that in your messaging so you've talked a little bit about how these groups can do better Mm -hmm. by by celebrating the diversity of the veteran population how do you think male, this is a real wild question and just answer it however you want, but how do you think male veteran caregivers sort of disrupt the overall cultural narrative of women as caregivers and the the narrative of the military itself? So it's not a wild question at all. And it's something that I addressed in a very early draft of the article. I left it out because it wasn't necessary to get the point across Uh but so we've talked about what we call women's work and and women's work is typically we put it in this subordinated status where it's unpaid and still expected where we expect women to be self-sacrificing and we expect women to perform unpaid labor and in many cases and in the military the military has thrived off of women's unpaid labor because there's an expectation that the wife is taking care of certain things at home. I've been in that unit where someone says, oh, make sure your wife does this for you, which is damaging both for people who, for anybody who doesn't have a wife, whether they're male or female. But it's also, unless we can incorporate men into this narrative, whatever we, we decide is going to be appropriate women's work will remain in the subordinated status. It will not be valued as much as it needs to be. And it ends up being this vicious cycle where, in that case, men may be less likely to do it. Mm -hmm. There was a really terrific article in the New York Times over the weekend called The Men Feminism Left Behind. And it talks about 
how throughout the different generations of the feminist movement, women have made inroads in, I mean, it's essentially women have made inroads in the workplace, and there have also been laws that address gender discrimination. But a lot of that movement, there wasn't a push for men to do more housework, so we hear about the second shift. There wasn't a push for why don't we make it, you know, more culturally acceptable for men to be stay-at-home spouses. Why aren't we also examining the biases that exist against men who want to be in what we consider more nurturing professions like teaching elementary school or nursing or, you know, these more caregiver roles. And it's unfair to everybody. So having this platform where you can also give attention to that and start to normalize it is hugely important. Well, if we want to evolve as a culture, it's probably not a bad idea. I think you might have addressed this a little bit earlier, but I want to ask you to explain something that you wrote in the piece that we were talking about initially anyway. You wrote, by visibly focusing attention only on the military slash veteran wife as caregiver, support networks attempt to alleviate one problem while perpetuating the issue of invisibility. Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. There is absolutely no question that military spouses are underappreciated and misunderstood. It's very, very difficult for military spouses who are mostly women to establish their own careers. Mm -hmm. There is an expectation and almost a requirement of some kind of sacrifice, whether it means spending a lot of time away from your family because of wherever your spouse is stationed, not being able to really develop your career because you're moving constantly and wherever your spouse is stationed may also not be a hub for your profession. Mm-hmm. They give up a lot. And there, there's also a lot of invisible, I mean, and a lot of them spend a lot of time basically functioning as single parents. Yeah. So they deserve a great deal of respect and visibility and attention to their concerns. But that doesn't mean it has to be at the expense of military and veteran partners and caregivers, whether they're um, a romantic domestic partner or a friend or a parent. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be at their expense. I think we can talk about their issues simultaneously. Yeah. You know, I just, I think that there's a lot of reasons why we don't really get into military caregivers generally, a male or female. I think we have a problem acknowledging the the size of this problem. I mean, it's really, really big. There are over 40 million unpaid family caregivers in the United States, and it just seems like the, the there's not a lot of visibility around military caregivers, period. I don't know. It seems like... The male military veteran caregiver is an underserved and hidden population, but so is the entire caregiving force of folks who come back from being deployed. I feel like we celebrate members of, this is kind of a larger question too, I feel like we celebrate our military veterans for good reason, but we don't really talk a lot about the emotional and physical burdens that are borne by these service members. And... I love that you wrote the article about male caregivers, but I would love to see more written about caring for our military veterans, just generally. 
because we celebrate them a lot, but we don't really talk about how we care for them. Am I off the mark here or? No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I do think there's a lack of visibility on the, you know, the, all of the people who serve alongside with you who may not necessarily be in uniform. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason why there was also attention given to female caregivers is because that is an image that we are somewhat used to. Right. But you're absolutely right that it does get to, A, the larger issue of the fact that we don't hear a lot about these caregivers and, and we don't hear enough about what military families and, and by that I don't just mean spouse and children, but I also mean, you know, extended families. I, I live on the other side of the country from my parents. So, right. and that's what I mean is like, these are all the people who serve alongside with you who may not wear a uniform. Right. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there are also a lot more, our veterans who are coming home may also have, invisible disability right mm-hmm. so, so and which is even further compounded by the fact that it's you one know, percent of the population one percent in the united states one percent of the u.s population now serves so wow that's really really something so what do you want people to know about male veteran caregivers that we haven't covered is there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to talk about that came up in the article or in any of your other writing I think just in general, and I think I think most people are really well-meaning and do want to help. And I think the most important thing is people just need to ask. Mm-hmm. And it's not just asking questions. I think we, we can learn how to ask the right questions, which is, where did you serve? What do you need? What are, your cha- what are the challenges? I think a lot of assumptions are made. I think most people... I mean, if, if we were to say there's a disabled veteran living in our, in our household, everybody would assume that it's my partner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fortunately, he's very healthy. And it turns out that I was the one who ended up having health issues. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of male caregivers may simultaneously feel like they can handle things on their own. I think this is, this is true of a lot of caregivers. But, the, but because male caregivers are not as visible... And it's not something that we you know, culturally expect as much. I think male caregivers simultaneously feel like they have to handle everything on their own and are also less likely to be asked if they need support. And I think the best thing we can do is be proactive at messaging that anyone can be a caregiver. Mm-hmm. What I didn't expand upon was of those 40% of male veteran caregivers about half of those are friends your your buddy so it's not just wives standing by their husbands i mean not only do we not understand male caregivers but i you know i i think it might be very very challenging to tell say a boss you know i need to take this afternoon off because i'm taking my buddy to a doctor's appointment as opposed to you know my spouse yeah I think, you know, I, and I think we've probably talked, we've probably said this in, in various ways throughout this conversation that you and I have been having, that uh, the language that we use is so important on so many levels. And then being able to just have the courage to have the conversation is a big piece of it, is, is an important piece of it. And it's not unpatriotic 
to say what you think, even if you don't like what you hear. You know, um, there's nothing. Right. There's nothing. There's nothing less patriotic than the conversation that is stifled. That's not what we're about in this country. That's not even if you don't agree with what I'm saying. I should be able to say it, and you should be able to hear it. Absolutely. Andrea Goldstein, she's a retired naval officer who contributes to Task and Purpose, and she's now a master's candidate at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And even though she lives in Boston, she still roots for the Yankees. Andrea, thank you for being on the show. Your perspective is really invaluable, as has been your military service. I can't say that enough. Again, thank you for serving our country, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your support. Thank you, Jenna. Thanks, Andrea. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. In the meantime, if you don't want to miss any episodes, head on over to agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and subscribe to the podcast. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, Jana Panaritis, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. If you'd like to be on the show or just tell us what you think about it, send an email to Jana at agewise.com. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Yours.